Good morning. How are we doing? If, uh, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are in 1 John. We've been here for some weeks. We're continuing our study now. Um, John is the author of the Gospel of John, uh, the first, second, and third epistle, and then the book of Revelation. Toward the tail end of the Gospel of John, John declares that his purpose for writing the Gospel was that you may believe and have life in Christ because you believe. And if we were going to answer why he is now writing this first epistle, he's writing to answer How do we know we believe? He's writing to a hurt, a broken, a confused, a distressed church. We've learned that sometime in the past, uh, apparently the the recent past, there has been a division in the church. They said, we we thought we all believed the same thing, and now there's this division, this split. Some have left our body, some have gone away, and we're now divided and confused as what's What's right? What, who, believes, who believes what? And so John writes this epistle in hopes of bringing comfort and hope and assurance of salvation to this body of believers. I don't know if anybody else does this. When I read a text from Kirk or Wyatt or David, I can hear their voice, I can see their face, I can picture their mannerisms, right? And so for for me, it was very helpful to think of John in this way, uh, to understand how his readers were reading this letter. And so all of us um, would quickly remember that John is who? who? He's the disciple whom Jesus... Absolutely. And so I'll be honest, when I think of that, I think of a smaller, fragile male who was, you know, leaning on the chest of Jesus. He's tender, and we see this tenderness in his fatherly and pastoral tone throughout this letter as he says, my little children, my little children, my little children. But it's also helpful for me to recognize that in Mark, Jesus gives him this awesome nickname, Son of Thunder. (laughs) Son of Thunder. This was probably... Not a weak, frail man. He was a fisherman. He was probably big and burly. And when he spoke, it drew the attention of the men around him. And maybe the ground even shook a little when he spoke. And so Jesus calls him son of thunder. And so throughout this book, we see this tone of fatherly, pastoral care. But we also see him starkly contrast those who should have assurance of salvation and those who should not. And he refutes with sound doctrine, those who pervert and distort the truth, calling them false prophets, sons of Satan, antichrist. And he paints this picture for us of light and darkness, truth and lie, in Christ, antichrist. And today we see son or children of God and children of Satan. And John says there should be a very apparent contrast between the two. Time and time again as we read through, he, he kind of ends those sections with, by this we should know. And by this it is evident that the way the church, the children of God appear, should be so different, so in contrast to the children of Satan and the world that it's easy to see that it's easy to know. I can't help but to believe that we too recognize this, right? In our own hearts, we recognize that we should stand in such contrast 
to those who don't know Christ. That the world should look much different than us, that we as a body should look much different than the world around us. We should be a light on a hill, right? Even, even the secular world identifies that there should be this contrast. They don't even believe what we believe, but they acknowledge that there should be this contrast. That's why on the tail of every church scandal, you hear what? Hypocrite. Money, sex, power. Hypocrite. Has anyone here ever heard the media address Hugh Hefner as a hypocrite? Kim Kardashian? Tom Cruise? Oprah Winfrey? No. <laughs> the, the media never, ever declares them to be a hypocrite. Why? Why is that? I'm, I'm actually gonna argue that whether we agree with them or not, they're, they're not walking in hypocrisy. The very thing that they declare their hope to be in is what they chase, and they say it unashamedly, right? No, Hugh Hefner has never made it any, any uh, suspicion as to what he is chasing after. Little Wayne, not once. Kim Kardashian, not once. There's no confusion. And so for us as believers, can, can we say the same? Can the world look at us and immediately declare that which we place our hope in and that we chase after? I'd say barely for most. I believe we have a tarnished hope, a hope that hopes for the least needed for salvation instead of the hope of the Bible. Hope, the, the hope of a future restoration, the hope of eternity in the presence of God, the hope of being made whole, the hope of longing for nothing, possessors of everything, the hope of the God of hope, giving us a hope that purifies us and demonstrates to us, demonstrates to the world around us why they should hope for nothing less and long for nothing more. This should be our hope. This should be the hope that the, that the children of God seek to possess, seek to attain. And with the same tough and tender approach as John, I believe we as individuals should see this stark contrast and challenge ourselves, challenge our church, challenge our friends and our families and those around us who declare themselves to be children of God to be pursuing this same hope. Hope, we should demand hope for, press for, fight for as individuals and as a church, a hope and purity that leaves us with an incompatibility to sin and looks nothing like what the world hopes and longs for. Do you long for that? For yourself, for our church, this is what we'll see today in the text. We pick up um, chapter two, verses 28 and 29, and then we'll roll into chapter three. A little bit of an odd division. If you're in the ESV, the hardback, we're on uh, 1022. That's the page. And, and most of your ESVs already have that broke. We know that the divisions, the chapters, the verses, um, that they weren't in the original text and that they were placed there in hopes of helping us follow the train of thought of the author, right? Um, here, I, I think we would have been served better to not have this chapter break here. Um, and, and so I'm going to read through 3-3. Um, three, three. That's actually the, the, the section that, that I believe belongs there. Um, and so we're going to read through that together. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that, she would, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I hope you can see and agree why I would put those together right in 28. We begin to open up with this appearance, the, the returning of Christ. And then as we move through and we're reading the implications of that and we come to verse 2 in chapter 3, we see it again address this appearing of Christ. And then in verse 3, he wraps this up and says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That we're to have this hope this hope in the return of Christ, this hope in, in the coming of Christ, and that by virtue of this hope, we'll begin to walk in purity and purify ourselves. So I want to spend a little bit of time addressing this hope. What is this hope? I want to paint this picture. Um, we're going to be here a little bit. I'm going to try to run through this very quickly, but I believe it's foundational. I believe it paints the picture for these verses. I believe it paints the pictures for uh, four through 10. And so we're going to run through this. I would advise you not to try to necessarily go verse to verse with me, but jot notes. Um, the Bible says a lot about hope, but the first thing is to affirm that our hope is in God. It sounds simple to say our hope is in God, yet the implications are immense. Our hope is in God, not man, not ourselves, not the world, in God. It is the unchanging God, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the ever-present God, the God who is holy and unable to sin, the God who is truth and unable to lie, the God abiding in love. Our hope is in God. This is why the psalmist can proclaim in Psalm 43, 5, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Our, our souls will be in turmoil. Our souls will be in despair. The, this world is not as we want it to be. It's not as it should be. This is why we lock our doors at night. We know things are not right. This is not how we would plan it, not how we want it. And so we disparage, we're discouraged, we're perplexed, we're anxious. And the psalmist here says, stop. Hope in God. That when we let these situations, no matter how big or how small, perplex us and draw us into anxiety and worry and discouragement, we've actually placed our hope in that situation and the outcome of it versus placing our hope in God. He says, hope in God. God has never broke his promises, can never break his promises, and his promise for care, concern, provision, protection, redemption, restoration, and eternal life through Jesus Christ are our hope. Not only is God who we hope in, it is him that gives us the very ability to hope in him through grace. This is not something we can create, not something we can earn, not something we can manifest in and of ourselves. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Verses 16 and 17. Now may our 
Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We have not the ability to hope in God ourselves. This is a good and gracious gift from God. He gives us the ability to hope and then he inclines our hearts to hope in him. How is this hope in him given by grace revealed to us? I'm glad you asked. Well, through the scripture, of course. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I love that. Through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, as we look at how God and his people have endured, as we look at how he has encouraged and carried his people, it graciously gives a hope in himself to us. So we have a hope in God, from God, by grace, revealed through scripture that has already been secured for us. How has it been secured? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how our hope is secured. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the security of our hope. John 14, Jesus said, because I live, you will also live. If Jesus didn't rise, we don't rise. It is because Jesus rose that we will rise again. This is the assuredness, the security of our lives, of being rose to newness in life. This is our assurance. He did, he rose, and in him we rise. There may have been some doubt when he was on the cross, some reason to question as men and women who had placed their hope in him looked to Christ with outstretched arms and said, This is who we've hoped in. This is who we've looked to. And and here it looks as though he's going to die and, and this is going to be done. Can this really be the Holy One that won't see corruption? He he's on the cross. He's about to die. Is this who Job was honestly referencing when when he said, Um, though worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God? And when Jesus said to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that it was reason to believe, whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live because I am the resurrection. And there may have been an open question as he hung on that cross. There may have been a moment of doubt for the men and women who were looking to place their hope and their trust in him. But that was until one event, the monumental event, the event that changed the world, the event that changed time, the event that secures your eternal life, your hope as a born-again Christian, the event was the resurrection of Christ. When he rose, we can walk in assurance that we will rise, that he is 
the resurrection, that he does bring newness of life. Two more, we'll get into the text. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The hope is going to stir up the hope that's secured for you by Christ, revealed to you by Scripture, given to you by grace for hope in the promises of God the Father. What are those promises? Romans 8, 23 through 25, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This, this shook me a little bit this week as I thought about what I hope in and the fact that clearly here it's saying that if we're hoping only for what we can see, for what we've seen, then we're really not hoping at all. We're, we're really not hoping at all. Everything that's already been revealed to us, that's been shown to us, they're shadows, they're types, but we're to hope for something bigger. Our hope is bigger already. And so thus I'm going to argue that our salvation is yet unrealized in its fullness. Let that settle in. Our salvation is yet unrealized in its fullness. We have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. <laughs> it is yet unrealized in its fullness. This is the tip of the iceberg. Think, think about that. what we know and experience. It is good to know and experience the forgiveness of sin, to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to experience the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. It is good to experience answered prayer, to know Christian fellowship, to enjoy worship, and to be engaged in service to the Lord. Those are good, but our salvation is yet unrealized in its fullness. We hope to be face-to-face for eternity in a pure and incorruptible body where everything we have just named is no longer momentary, no longer skewed by sickness, shame, sin, guilt, doubt, anxiety, or fear. Imagine that. Oh, hope for that. Long for that. When we are made as he is, Heirs of everything, exploring all of his creation in its intended purpose and proper order. That's the kind of hope the world needs to see. That's the kind of hope that will stand in direct contrast to anything the world has to offer. That's the kind of hope that will produce in us a fight for purity to be pure as he is 
pure. Is that the picture of hope that you have? When people ask for an account of our hope, can we share the gospel and tell them what happens? For those redeemed by Christ, can we give them a reasonable defense that eternity is real and that it will be spent seeing God face to face in all his glory and that in our perfect and redeemed bodies, we will sit at his feet and in his grace and in his love for eternity? I'll be honest, oftentimes that's not my hope. My hope is very much smaller than that, very much tarnished in that. I'm hoping I can make it through the week. I'm hoping I can pay the bills. I'm hoping I know what to do the next time Ethan does something stupid. Those are my hopes, and they're petty. And so when alcohol and pornography and lust and possessions and positions of power creep in or offer themselves, to be quite honest, sometimes that hope looks greater than my hope. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't. If we have this kind of hope, if we have this kind of hope, any other hope that creeps in is quickly diminished, quickly laughed at, quickly dismissed because we know it doesn't compare. Now, with that hope in mind, let's get into verse 28. Again, I wanted to, I, I, I do, I believe that's the foundation, so we're gonna, we're gonna roll through this, so stick with me. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. John repeats his emphasis on abiding. To abide means to continue in, to remain, to stay. When John says to abide, he's referring to the perseverance of faith unto salvation. This is evidence of being a true believer, This doesn't make you a true believer. You're able to do this because you are a true believer. You abide, you persevere. Your hope is in God and despite circumstances, situations, or personal failings, you stay the course. The hope of Christ's return sustains your faith. When you're looking forward to the return and the appearance of Christ when you are conformed to his image, made as he is, and you get to sit at him and the Father's feet for eternity, free of sin, pain, despair, tears. This suffering is temporal. This suffering is petty. And so we abide. So that when he appears, again, we're grounded in this hope, We know that he's appearing, right? We've latched ourselves on to all the promises of scripture that he died, that he rose, that he's coming again, that he's prepared a place for us and that because he rose, we will rise. And when he appears, he will take us unto himself. This is the rapture and the gathering of his church, the judgment seat to follow. Christ will return. He will gather to himself his church according to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, and at that time Jesus will bring into light that which is now hidden and disclose the purposes of the heart. Note that because the following verse says what? We may have confidence. And so why do we need to have confidence or how can we have confidence? Well, because at that time Jesus will bring into light now which is hidden and disclose the purposes of our heart. 
For the believer, everything done in righteousness, to glorify God, to um, expand his kingdom, will be rewarded. We're assured of that. We're storing up treasures for ourselves. And he says, latch on to that truth. Latch on to that. Everything that was not for his glory, not for his gain, not for the extension of his kingdom will be burned up according to 1 Corinthians 3.13. And some of us, if we're not fighting for this purity, it says we may be saved only by fire. It means everything we've ever done in this life will be burned up. No reward. The only reward you get is the, the being in heaven, which granted is reward, but I, I want to store up for myself treasures in heaven. I want to make myself pure as he is pure. so that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Confidence here means an outspokenness, a, a freedom of speech. This is not a cocky arrogance, but rather a certainty that comes from being a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, that your hope is in God and assurance that you are holy and blameless, not because of your work, but because of the work of Christ and the righteousness that he has imputed to you. Hebrews tells us to come before the throne with boldness and I can't help but to imagine it at the second coming when we are made perfect and we get to stand before our maker in perfection and see him as father and know then with assurance, unquestionable assurance, free from sin, free from doubt that we are his child. We will confidently, confidently, Abba, Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The hope of Christ's return and what that accomplishes for us as believers not only sustains our faith, it makes righteousness a habit. It makes righteousness for us a habit. To practice here means to live in a continual and habitual state of. This is the normal way of living. We see this time and time again throughout John's epistle, right? They practice this, they practice that, and you can know them by that. Their normal way of living is righteousness, then you may be sure that they have been born of him, born of him, this is spiritual birth, regeneration, the moment when God removes the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 give us this promise from long ago. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. God's spirit dwelling in us results in a new creation, one in which God's righteousness will be displayed through us and be the evidence of the regeneration that has taken place within us. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us 
that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He calls us children of God, and children of God we are. There's a lot of stuff in this verse we could go through. We're not going to get into everything. Um, I'm going to say that from the offset. Um, Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 6. Three through six, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's, it's this picture of God's love that should be such a radical catalyst for our hope in him, for our hope in the return of his son, to think that in eternity past, he loved us. Before the foundations of the earth, he had our name written down. You will be my child. And he stopped at nothing, not even the giving of his own son to see that come. Romans 8 says we're predestined. Those who are predestined, called, those called, justified, those who are justified, glorified. It's one of my favorite verses throughout all of scripture because for me what that does is saying in predestination, the fact that he foreknew me in eternity past was that he has always loved me. Before, before anything else, he loved me. So I know that if he loved me in eternity past and he says that he's justifying me and that he's going to glorify me, he's loving me in eternity future. If he's loved me in eternity past, if he's promised to love me in eternity future, that means right now in present, I can rest assured that God loves me. He has my joy, his glory in mind. And though some of the discipline and the chastening that takes place may be painful, it's from a loving father. A father who loves me and says, I am his child. And I'll be honest, I, I don't know that we can fathom that. I believe that's part of our unrealized fullness I don't think any of us, get, even those of us who come from good dads, I don't think we can grasp the idea of redeeming an enemy, someone who is at enmity with you. You give your only son for them as a ransom and then you adopt them as a child and make them an inheritor of everything you possess. It's amazing great assurance and a great hope we can place in him. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. This really shouldn't come as a surprise. If we're going to have the contrast that we're laying out here, that we're saying this contrast of hope that should exist between us, it should be no surprise that the world's hope is so different from our hope that they will not know us. They will not understand us. They do not know how we tick, why we tick, what we, what are you doing? That's the only question they will ask because our hope is so far from anything they've hoped in. Right? Our, our hope isn't for temporal things. 
It's not for position. It's not for power. It's not for money. It's not for sex. It's not for relationships. Our hope doesn't long in those things. And so when we very easily dismiss those things for this longing, this great hope for the return of Christ and who he has said we already are and what we will be, then we're foreigners to them. We're, we're strangers. They don't know us because they don't know our Father. Beloved, verse 2, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Another one of those already not yet, right? All throughout scripture. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. You already are, and you're not quite yet. <laughs> that, that fullness is un realized. We are now, yet the fullness of the sonship, of the daughtership, is still unrealized. We are repeatedly told we are being conformed to the image of Christ throughout Scripture, but it is not until his return that we will know exactly what that means, what that looks like. When we see him face to face, then it will be made known to us because we shall see him as he is. hard to fathom and almost indescribable, but what we do know is that as much as glorified humanity can be knit and brought into conformity with incarnate deity, that's what we will be. Not little gods. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But as much as that is possible for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we'll be. That's crazy. That's what we'll be. Knowing that's what we'll be when he returns, when he appears, should what? Produce a hope in us for his return. It should produce a longing in us for us to purify ourselves that we would look as close to that as possible before he even gets here. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we have this hope in Christ's return and everything God promises to do at his return, if what we get to experience here is but a fleeting glimpse of the fullness of salvation that lies ahead, then we want to start now. We want to fight now, knowing we will never reach perfection here and now, but that God is fighting for us and through us and daily shaping and conforming us to the wonderful image of his son. That's worth fighting for because I know he's gonna complete it. If it's on me, I can't complete it. I'm gonna sit down. I'm going to sit down because I know I cannot attain that, but he can. He has promised to attain that, and so I'm going to fight. I'm going to put these hands, these legs to work. I'm going to cut hands off. I'm going to gouge eyes out. I'm going to forsake everything to be pure as he is pure. That's what that hope, that longing should produce in us. First Peter 1 
verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Are you fighting for that purity? Are you personally fighting for that purity? Are you asking God, your spouse, your community group, your DNA, is there anything you see that concerns you that isn't glorifying to God, that is questionable, that diminishes His glory or the image of Son? Are you fighting the sins that may have easily entangled you in the past? Are you putting up fences, not because fences save, but because fences are good and healthy? They keep us from crossing over boundaries we need not cross. So if you're the porn addict, you should have some kind of program on your computer. You need accountability. Are you cutting off hands? Are you gouging out eyes? Are you forsaking the things that have so easily entangled you? Trey and I were talking about this this weekend. If your TV or your computer is an issue, are you so ignorant as to think the TV or the computer isn't worth throwing out the door compared to your salvation and the return of Christ and being pure as he is pure. That's the kind of fighting we're called to do. That's the kind of purity Christ calls us to, to be holy as he is holy, not because we're saved by being holy or by doing those things, but because we are already saved and he promises to make us holy. So put hands and feet to it to prove it. To show what he's doing. To show what he's done. To give the world around us a hope for what we hope in. We're not willing to fight for it. How are we calling anybody else to it? If he's not good enough for us to fight, why would we ever expect anyone else to come to him? Verses 2, 28 through 3, 3, we, we looked at the purifying hope of the born-again believer. Um, the result of that, of this, this hope, right? This hope in the return, this hope in the appearing uh, of Christ, it, it's going to turn now. And, and this is the result in verses 4 through 10. John is going to emphatically, emphatically say that a simple assurance of one's faith is the moral test. Do you disobey Scripture? Are you blatantly ignoring Scripture and habitually and unrepentantly walking in sin that is in contrast to the holiness a child of God is called to? Then you're not saved. He says it clearly. He says it boldly. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. A practice. Remember to live in a continual and habitual state of, this case, sin. The child of God cannot walk in this state. Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. 
Sin cannot have dominion in a born-again believer's life. He or she is certainly capable of sinning. This is not perfection. What, what, what John's pushing for here and telling us here is not that the Christian will be perfect, but that a Christian cannot walk continually, habitually, unrepentantly in sin. It is incompatible with his new nature, her new nature. Remember, we see this time and time again. First John 1 says, if you say you have no sin, you're what? You're lying. And, and throughout Scripture, First John included, we see what to do when we do sin. We're to confess and repent and come to our brothers or our sisters, those we have offended, and trust that Christ has covered that. Remember the hope we, we talked about. Did you see how it encompassed the Trinity? I, I didn't mention it before. I, I, I wanted to see if it, if it got through. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father gives the hope. The Son secures the hope. The Spirit empowers and confirms the hope, right? Watch, watch what John does in, in all of these verses to follow. That's why I spent so much time on hope. The first reason why a Christian cannot practice sin is because it is incompatible with the law of God which we love. Our hope is in God. God has given the law. Lawlessness is in direct contrast to God. It says lawlessness is not just a transgression of the law. It's saying that there is no law. There is no lawgiver. I get to make my own law. And so for the one who has hope given to him by grace from the Father, it's incompatible. That's, that's what John's telling us, see, under the law, we hated the law because we were under the law and it was unachievable. But for the born-again believer, the one whom Christ has already achieved salvation, we love the law. We cherish its commands. It reveals the sin we seek to destroy and we cherish it and fight to obey it. Knowing where we fall short, the Father has already made us right through Jesus Christ's perfect completion of that law. And so a Christian cannot practice sin because it's incompatible with the law of God. Five through seven, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Though we've seen the father who gave the law. The second reason a Christian cannot practice sinning is because it's incompatible with the work of Christ. What does verse five say? He appeared in order to take what? Away sin. <laughs> this is the very work Christ came to do. The very work Christ secured in you through his hope is that he took away sin and in him there is no sin. Christ died to secure the holiness of the believer. To live in a continual state of sin is contrary to that work. Verse six, no one who abides in you keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen you or known you. John unapologetically says, if you claim Christ and you're habitually unrepentantly 
walking in sin, you don't know the Jesus I know. You're, you're not born again. It's not that you've lost your salvation. It's that you were never saved. You've never seen Jesus for who he is. You've never known Jesus for who he is. That's why you lack the hope that allows you to persevere. Again, this doesn't mean we never sin. It means we will not continually, habitually, unrepentantly wallow in sin. This will not be our life. Before I was saved, I lived in sin. Everything around me was built upon that and stemmed out of that. Continual state. Verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John's again warning here uh, the deception that this church has just experienced. Last week, we, we, we learned all about um, the, the Antichrist, not the, the big main Antichrist, but the Antichrist that would come in, that he would send in to distort and pervert the word of God and the heresies they created in which the body and spirit were separate. And Jesus was never a man, and this allowed them to separate the spirit from the body in regards to sin. That means the body can do whatever it wants without effect to the spirit. John says that's absolutely false. Don't be deceived. You know that Christ came in the flesh. We have seen him. We have heard him. We know that he rose again and we know he's coming again. And that hope, that hope keeps you from walking in sin. 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those that live in a continual and habitual state of sin are of the devil. That sounds awfully harsh, and we don't like saying that, but that's the truth. There are two fathers in this world, God the Father and Satan. That's it. That's it. If you or someone you know, love, cherish, is walking in a habitual, continual state of sin, Satan is their father. He is the father of all lies. He is the father of sin. It originated with him and it will be destroyed with him. They are under the influence of Satan. Satan has been skewing the hope of man since the beginning, tempting him to hope not in God's sovereign rule, law, and order, but rather to hope in his own understanding, his own desires, his own false ability to play God. A third reason Christians cannot practice sinning is because it's incompatible with the work of Christ to destroy Satan's works. Not only was his work on the cross to sanctify, but also to destroy Satan and his works. Satan is still operating, but he has been defeated. Ephesians 6 tells us there's still spiritual warfare going on, but we know that the victory is Christ. Right? That's the difference between D-Day and V-Day when we're talking about World War II. Right? D-Day was when everyone landed. They knew then, they knew then the war was going to end. They knew then who would win. But it wasn't until the final surrender that they actually said this is victory day. Right now, we're, we're in D-Day. 
Satan has been destroyed. There are still wars waging, but Satan has been destroyed and his tyranny and his rule over the born-again Christian no longer exists. He has no fangs. He has no claws for you as a born-again believer. You cannot be held by him. He cannot snatch you from the hand of the Father. True believers will escape the works of Satan because Christ has destroyed them on our behalf. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We've seen the father, we've seen the son. The fourth reason a Christian cannot practice sinning is because it is incompatible with the work of the Holy Spirit who has imparted a new nature to the believer. This new nature reflects the righteousness of God and therefore cannot live in a continual and habitual state of sin. Our new nature reflects the righteousness of God. What's been our memory verse for the last month and a half? What's been our memory verse? What have we been studying in groups? Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Brother, the Holy Spirit and Christ dwell within you. (laughs) Their righteousness dwells within you. It has been imparted to you. And we may not understand the fullness of it right now in this moment, but what we do know is that because of that righteousness, because the very nature of God exists in you and is drawing you back to the image you should have been before, the image you were originally created for to be the image of God, and we know the image of God does not sin, cannot sin. So for those born again who have this seed, the word, Christ abiding in them through the Holy Spirit, we cannot practice sinning. Verse 10, John concludes by this, it is evident. There are two kinds of children in the world, children of God, children of Satan. The children of God are made evident by their purifying hope in Christ, their incompatibility with sin, and their love for the brothers study that some next week. The children of Satan are made more evident are made evident by hope in this life alone, their love of sin and their hate for the brethren. Kirk started this series asking where you're at. Are you a believer? And every week we should be pressing against this question time and time again, with fear and trembling, working out our salvation. Do I have this assurance? Is this my hope? Am I fighting for purity? Taking confidence in God's word. Application, ask the God of hope to give you a hope worth persevering for. Search the scriptures in the coming weeks, months, years for all the promises of God that everything else that seems to offer temporary hope will diminish. It's not that we need to fight every single hope that comes into the picture. 
It's that we need to know the greatest hope so well that all of those diminish around it. This is what Pat was talking about with, with counterfeit. It's not that bank tellers run their fingers through counterfeit money all day. It's that they're so used to handling, smelling, touching, feeling, seeing the real stuff that when anything fake comes along, they know it immediately. Immerse yourself in the promises of God. And the God of hope. Abide. Some of us are on a spiritual high right now. Some of us are in a spiritual low. Persevere. Stay the course. That, that, that's what I'm going to tell you. Stay the course. If you are a born-again believer, stay the course. God has sovereignly ordained that you are where you are at. It has either come from his hand or through his hand. And it's for your joy and his glory and he will bring you through it either in this life or the appearance of his son. Third application, purify yourself and call for the purity of those around you that we may be the light, the truth, the children of God in the face of Christ to the world around us. Walk in your community groups. Walk in DNA. Not a half-hearted appearance. You eat and don't engage or you don't come half the time. Walk in community group knowing that those men, those women have been placed there to help sanctify you. This is part of the progressive sanctification. The part of your purification God has in store for you is to walk with brothers and sisters, that they get to see you, that they get to see all your blind spots, that they get to see all your strengths, and that you get to sharpen one another. Where he is weak, I am strong, and where I am weak, he is strong. So we can hold one another accountable. We can lift one another up in prayer. We can carry one another's burdens and help each other stay the course. Don't, don't walk in that half-hearted. Use this as an opportunity to walk in purity. This is the best way to know and be known by the brothers and sisters of our church. So if we're going to be a people a church, a holy nation, right? Set aside in direct contrast to the hope of this world. We've got to fight together, arm in arm, purifying ourselves as he is pure until the day he returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hope that you've given us, this gift of eternal life which we do not deserve we could not earn, we cannot forfeit. We live in hope. We live in a hope of the return of your son and of, of being face to face with you for eternity. <laughs> Until that time when our, our salvation is made known in all its fullness, when what we long for becomes what we are, May we abide, may we, may we be faithful in living in the purifying hope that you've called us to. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.